In this episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with Ross Israel, Head of Global Infrastructure at QIC. Ross and his team manage over 14 billion Australian dollars in assets such as ports, roads, airports, water, electricity, gas and healthcare. Investing in unlisted long-duration assets like infrastructure requires such a nuanced view of risk and a long historical perspective on politics and economics, all of which Ross has in spades. During our conversation, Ross shares how he and his team have managed their investments through this COVID-19 period, which you can imagine, owning roads and airports, has presented some challenges. I learned so much during our chat about a style of investing and an asset class that I knew very little about, yet I found the principles that Ross talks about are so relevant to all forms of investing. I hope you find our conversation as interesting and as educational as I did. Enjoy. This is David Hobart from Beyond the Obvious, the podcast in search of unexpected insights for investment professionals. Ross, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down and have a chat today. It's really great to, uh, you know, in such interesting times to be able to sit down with someone who's got so much uh, breadth and depth of uh, experience and particularly investing in unlisted, illiquid type assets. Uh, I'd love to get a little bit of a handle as we tee off perhaps on what it is that you typically do. What are the types of investments that you and your team typically make? Yep. Well, good to be here, Dave. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Uh, So my role at QIC is to head a team which invests in unlisted infrastructure. And broadly, we define that in respect of three core sectors. So the first is transport, which includes road, rail, seaports, airports, car parking, and then energy and utilities, which covers electricity, gas and water assets. And the third is broadly a category called social and PPPs, so public-private partnerships. Um, That includes assets such as hospitals, um, courthouses, things done under the public-private partnership model that's in various states around the world. We're focused on OECD assets, and in some Mm -hmm. shape or form in each of those three sectors, we have in our existing portfolio of 19 direct assets exposure to nearly every one of those sectors in some shape or form and those assets cover at present six countries so that gives you some perspective on the existing portfolio which is sort of a bit over 14 billion Australian dollars Um, it it works itself through five offices that we have uh, London New York Sydney Melbourne Brisbane and we've got a team of about 45 people yeah wow well that's um that'd keep you busy it keeps us occupied, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah wow. So I don't know if you're able to um, talk about any of the underlying assets inside the portfolio. Um, you know, is there a, like on the public record, transport asset, for example, that, you know, maybe we could work through what a transaction looks like? I mean, if that works for you. Yeah, sure. So, you know, our, our sort of lead pooled product is the, QIC Global Infrastructure Fund, and in the transport sector inside that fund, there are a number of transport assets, including um, exposure to Brussels Airport, Port of Melbourne, Hobart Airport, a a business in North Queensland, Northern Territory called SeaSwift, which is a freight logistics business, and we have a car parking concession in 
Massachusetts at Northeastern uh, University. Uh, so that gives you a sense of the transport exposure. In energy and utilities, uh, we have a, a large-scale renewable platform called Power. We have a distributed energy business in the US called Generate Capital. Uh, we also have a gas storage business in Victoria called Lockhart Energy in the portfolio. The last asset um, is in the social space, which is a uh, day surgery hospital platform called Nexus, which is an interesting ah. diversifying uh, subsector for us. Yeah, right. So there's a broad diversity of obviously assets inside of that, and they all have, I'm guessing, different return streams, different risk profiles, different like, how do you go about portfolio construction, uh, you, you know, when you're dealing with all those different types of assets? I mean, that's a pretty broad yeah. question, so, yeah. No, it's, it's a good question, though, because that's a key objective. The, the fund is positioned as a core call plus uh, offering. So, you know, we're looking to deliver, you know, an IRR, equity IRR between sort of 10 and 12% uh, to investors. That's the target. We're looking to build a portfolio that has diversification, uncorrelated return, and diversified by geography, life cycle, and sector. And so part of having that jurisdictional diversity and the respective aspects around macro factor, we, we're looking into having resilience to inflation, real interest rates, um, and exposure to, to GDP assets. So as we move through the construction of that portfolio, we've been very minded to sculpt the exposure in the fund to a particular level, which looks at hitting the target return and our yield objectives. And what that has done is of the 10 assets in the fund, seven of them have provided co-investment for investors. So we sculpt that opportunity because we're centred on ensuring the portfolio construction is rightly balanced for the target objectives the fund was established for and, and which the investors, you know, subscribe to. Yeah, that makes sense. So I'm guessing some of these uh, assets turn up in the market at times when, you know, you might have, a, you know, for example, your transport and geographical uh, part of your portfolio might be pretty loaded, but the asset itself is worth doing the work on. And so you can dial in or dial out the amount of exposure you take and balance it with co-investment. Is, it, is that sort of how you manage the opportunistic aspect to, you know, because some of these assets obviously are chunky and don't come up very often? You're, you're right. Some things don't trade that regularly. And, and um, the sculpting of exposure is, is really important, uh, particularly when you are balancing core, core plus type opportunities. So core plus typically is got significant growth. It could be a platform. We've got a number of those in the fund which we intend growing with bolt-on investments. So the ability to have co-investors means we can grow that company over time, uh, do so in a measured way and provide also those co-investors with greater exposure in a subsector that they may well see as attractive for their wider portfolio and their infrastructure allocation. So the co-investment is, is an important part. It's increasingly what institutional investors are seeking um, also because invariably there is a fee break around the respective co-investment that's meaningful for many of them. Yeah, right. Sure, that makes sense. So, um, you know, you talk about um, 
the core plus type type investing is that more typically sort of greenfield type investments that would would you know like if you're building a platform i mean your your current investment there i think you said it was nexus was it in the hospital space um, yeah, so that's a good question because um, there's a fundamentally different risk return profile in infrastructure with respect to Greenfield. It, it, it has a number of elements around capability and competency that, that are quite different. Our preferred sweet spot is expansion capital, growth capital in, in terms mm-hmm. of companies. Um the one space where we've been comfortable doing pure greenfield has been in the public-private partnership scheme where, you know, you've got a government uh, offtake, you've got an availability payment stream and there's a very clear allocation and risk pass-through that occurs in PPPs with respect to greenfield projects. That being said, in, in power, by way of example, where we've built out a series of wind farms, we had already pre contracted the offtake, Dave, so that allowed us yeah, to right. de-risk the, the, the greenfield. But nonetheless, we've had to deal with um, challenges in terms of site access, uh, suppliers, as you can imagine, with COVID. Um, the constraint of the grid um, has been much publicised, has had an effect on some of those greenfield projects. So there's a very different level of risk associated and we have a guideline that caps the amount of greenfield in the fund. So it, yeah, it's sure. a very good aspect that many investors in infrastructure should be aware of is that greenfield risk has a very different profile to it and obviously a different return metric. Yeah, sure. And for those unfamiliar uh, with greenfield versus brownfield, um, I wonder if you could just talk to you know, uh, what brownfield is to give the context around greenfield. I mean, that would obviously, brownfield would be the majority of your portfolio. I don't know what percentage, but... The, yeah, the bulk, the bulk. So Brownfield, uh, take for instance um, Lockhart Energy, which is a gas storage facility um, in Victoria. It was already established. The plant was already operating. Uh, you know, we acquired the the asset off off a utility, which was seeing it as non-core. Um, in terms of the development of that gas storage facility, we've expanded its capacity. So again, expansion, capital, growth. And we've also acquired some adjacent old gas fields which have potential storage for development in the future. So that's a typical profile of risk that we're comfortable with. Another example would be in the broader portfolio outside of the fund, um, we have investors, we're managing an interest in Brisbane Airport. So clearly the second runway development is an example of an expansion capital project within an asset. Um, mm. Another example would be in Sydney, we have an interest in the M7 uh, Westlink, which is also added to its concession, um, the North Connects Tunnel in Sydney, in terms of the toll road network. So, again, an expansion sort of growth project. That's our, our preferred sweet spot. And that's really where we would see Greenfield um, being defined yeah. for us, uh, probably not necessarily just if you want to call it developing something from scratch, uh, that's less of um, a focus yeah, link, in our investment link strategy. To something. Link, link yeah. to an existing asset that's already yeah. up and running, operating, has an established performance and financial record, if I can put it that way. Yeah, and I, you've obviously got a, a built-up institutional intelligence around the pre-existing asset, which helps inform decision 
you know, for any greenfield additions, that, that certainly makes sense. We should probably lead into you know, the type of resources that are in the team. Like we've got a sectorial focus. So there are people that live and breathe the transport sectors. There are people who've been in the C-suite in our team of those types of companies in a COO level we would typically always be represented on the board of the company and we have a series of uh, people that are directly focused on ESG sustainability aspects of the investments we have and also technology disruption. We have a dedicated person committed to reviewing technology, finding solutions for problems which we see in businesses that technology could solve. So the, the, the asset management piece of the business has really been the large part of how the team's grown since it was established in 2006. Yeah. Uh, no, that makes sense. Hey, um, I, I wanted to ask, you know, you, in that conversation we've just had around uh, some of the existing assets in your portfolio, I mean, imagine it's been a pretty interesting time over the last uh, few months with COVID in particular, like how have some of particularly those transport assets, you know, how have they kind of held up in the face of, uh, you know, something pretty unprecedented? Well, it's been, yeah, a hive is not a full-on sort of quarter dealing with it. Um, it, It's fair to say, obviously, you know, the airports have been, you know, savagely hit, that they would be in, in intensive care. Um, and, and still have, you know, clearly different pathways out of recovery. Um, the, the other assets in the transport sector have rebounded in different ways. Ironically, um, you know, traffic has returned on, on toll roads, you know, well. And obviously with the sort of uncertainties on public transport, many people are driving more in terms of the recovery to work that we're seeing in different jurisdictions we're in. So that's also underpinned a strong recovery in car parking assets. In the ports, they've been resilient in returning as as businesses have realigned their supply chains. So that's been an interesting journey. They've probably um, returned robustly, not quite to 2019 levels, but, but certainly robustly. And then some of the freight and, and logistic challenges, you know, have been driven by, you know, workplace sensitivities. Um, you know, there's probably been a, a five-step horizon we've gone through since March, Dave, in dealing with COVID-19. If, if this is interesting, just to walk um, your listeners through in terms of how, how the direct assets sort of world works, um, would that be helpful just to oh, go, go into? Okay, yeah. so, you know, the, the first immediate thing... Um, you know, in March was really what were the immediate challenges around workforce, customers and partners in the businesses we own, just dealing with workplace health and safety with COVID-19. So there was, you know, a massive amount of work done to see how businesses would be operating with, with the whole uncertainty of COVID. Um, that was then followed very quickly with an immediate need to look at cash management, liquidity and particularly financing of, of the balance sheet of each of the companies we're in. Um, for instance, um, for certain assets, wouldn't be surprised, the airports that was seeing revenue you literally dropped to zero, meant mm. a massive focus on liquidity and review of OPEX and CAPEX and what was discretionary, uh, what was going to be deferred, um, and managing that and ensuring that the business had the right relationships with its debt lenders, um, had 
termed out debt, we were very minded not to have anything if we could refinancing in the next 12 months. So we, we really jumped on two or three of our credits and got them refinanced out further. Then the focus, Third Horizon's been revisiting business plans for the next financial year, trying to factor in the virus's implications for operations as well as revenue and customers. And so the knock-on effects have become much clearer in that exercise. So boards that we have at each of the company have been working through reframing how the business would operate with a COVID set of scenarios. So we've mapped out a sort of very long recovery and then something which is slightly more uh, benign um, as a sort of bookends to run a business plan through and, and looking to scenario out how the businesses would react to each of them. The next horizon's been what's the new normal, what's fundamentally going to change in how, you know, the business operates. And so the airports, it's been, you know, a, a massive journey, as you can imagine, distressing airlines around the world. Um, what are the bubbles that are going to open up for domestic travel in each jurisdiction? How does that get activated? What non-aeronautical revenue can we drive uh, with respect to the current environment? So reimagining the assets with that mindset has been key. And then the last has been uh, reform. You know, what are the regulatory and competitive environments that each of the businesses sit in now that we're going to have to react to? Have customers and supply chains been affected by COVID? Because until we get a vaccine, um, you know, there's a lot of implications of, of a second wave and, and various aspects of capital projects, uh, customer sensitivities that we've had to deal with. And so pushing into um, some of the regulatory aspects um, with government has been a big factor and trying to work collaboratively to get better outcomes to adapt to a COVID world has been, you know, increasingly in the last month a key focus. So five horizons. Yeah, that, that's really interesting, Ross, because, you know, you've just gone through really methodically you know, you've got a range of different businesses, a range of different assets, uh, all impacted to you know some degree or another by this COVID experience, and and it's almost like you've teased out um, a range of well, you, you're thinking macro, but you're not prognosticating in the sense that you know you're not trying to form a macro view. You're just managing risk inside your existing assets, which is um, uh, you know you've got to have a deep macro perspective and you've got to have a deep historical perspective to be able to manage all of that like you're doing which you know to me is a little mind-boggling um how, how do you think but you know based on that like how do you think you know sort of governments coming through this will respond you know because in the infrastructure space i mean there's a lot of talk about uh government you know basically pump priming the economy through infrastructure, amongst other things. Um, do you have much of a sort of a, a context around that and, and what we might be likely to expect? Well, it's been clear probably to, to your listeners that, you know, the government's been a massive, you know, um, factor in, in dealing with, with COVID and it's, it's also clear that part of the fiscal stimulus that has been... Um, into many economies by governments is underpinned with an infrastructure angle, which um, is, is something through history ha has occurred, Dave. And so it makes the asset class 
an interesting institutional diversification, and and it and it is something which um, we we can turn to and put a little bit of um, historical perspective. So we can go back through time, and we've we've done some work on this, and um, you know we often have produced some research papers which are available around different topics of infrastructure, but we've looked into this fiscal stimulus over time. And, and maybe to put in context um, the fiscal stimulus we're seeing across the world in terms of COVID has really only been matched by that which came after the Second World War. To give you some relative aspects of how big stimulus has been over time through some crises, it might, it might be worthwhile reflecting on, on maybe three events. So the US stimulus during the Great Depression, um, which was under FDR, the New Deal, 1933 to 1939, the US built 800 airports, 78,000 bridges and 125,000 buildings were, were constructed as part of that, that program. World War II. It was an American initiative uh, which provided foreign aid to Western Europe after the end of the Second World War, and it was done through the Economic Cooperation Administration. That entity, the ECA, transferred over 13 billion US dollars, equivalent to over 128 billion US dollars in today's money to Europe between those years, and it represented approximately 5% of US GDP in 1948. And that money went across approximately 18 countries with the biggest recipients uh, being the United Kingdom, France and West Germany. Yeah, right. In contrast to that, um, what we saw in the global financial crisis, which is also you know, an example of, of where fiscal stimulus was sort of brought to bear and an infrastructure component was included here as well. These are US statistics again. 45,000 miles of road and bridge improvements were built. More than 100,000 renewable energy projects were initiated and transit centres um, were created in, in a large number of US cities. And so... Um, what, what we can see emerging is, you know, a tremendous opportunity for further infrastructure development to occur and investment. And, and clearly, some of those things are already emerging in Australia with the recent announcements by government of key projects, but also um, in the EU um, and also in the US, we anticipate there's going to be a likely series of projects which will underpin investment opportunities for institutional investors um, as part of their infrastructure allocation going forward. So fiscal stimulus out of these crises has, has typically you know, resulted in, in infrastructure opportunities and that's a really attractive piece in terms of this asset class in a portfolio for an institution or, or any investor. Yeah, sure. So you mentioned earlier that you only invest in OECD countries. Um, do you guys, like, I don't know how to, I mean, you've got to think with a 20, 30-year time horizon when you're investing, Ross, which to me is mind-boggling again. Uh, how do you frame or how do you price uh, shifting 
regulatory risk in some of these OECD countries? Like if, you know, I don't know whether you you, you guys see the US as a heightened risk today versus what it was five years ago and how you price that uh, in your infrastructure, infrastructure investing. Um, is that something that, you know, one, you have a process around, but two, keeps you up at night or how, how do you think about that? It's a good risk to draw out, Dave, because, um, you know, you can't invest in the asset class without touching, you know, three 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 key stakeholders. Um, typically, government, you know, federal, state, municipal levels of government. You've got customers, obviously, increasingly informed about infrastructure they use, and, and thirdly, you know, regulators. And so, regulators across pricing, and then across competition. And so, both of those things come to bear in different jurisdictions, and. You, you ride through very different regulatory cycles and, and clearly, um, you know, low interest rates have driven regulated rates of return down and, and that has been um, an offset to, you know, the resilience that those assets can present in a portfolio. So I can say having gone through, you know, just recently our 30 June valuation process that the regulated businesses which at the back end of 2019 were being very um, sort of what I'd say resisted. There was a lot of tilt towards GDP assets have have roared back with the respective diversification that they've brought and and the resilience in light of COVID to returns in, in the last six months. And so the key, which goes back to your previous point about portfolio construction, having exposure across electricity, gas and water assets that are regulated has been a really good strategy in terms of reviewing the last sort of 12 months. And so you can dip into different sectors and some of them are regulated in different ways. And so the nuances here probably could be worth drawing out. You, you, mm. you have inelasticity in terms of water as, as, as a regulated subsector, which is really you know, very powerful as a diversifier. Electricity, the value chain is fundamentally changing with respect to the input of renewables, battery storage and microgrids. So the regulatory risk in energy and the decarbonisation theme that we're observing is changing the risk in that regulated sector. But then in transport, you have certain assets that are regulated. So in, in airports, for instance, some assets are regulated with respect to pricing. And so that provides an element of downside protection same with ports. And so you, you have a valid filter looking at the type of regulatory regime. Is it a long-term uh, pricing agreement, if I could say 10 or 15 years, or is it a rolling five-year cycle of regulatory reviews that the business undertakes? Are you sitting in a peer group where you have an efficiency frontier that you compete against other businesses in the regulated eyes uh, to, to achieve better outcomes or, or is it a very small pool of comparable businesses that the regulator in question oversees? So very important aspect of investing in the asset class. Most portfolios in institutional land with exposure to infrastructure would have regulated assets in it. Yeah, sure. And so... Um, that was a great summary, but sort of coming back to the, it's probably more about politics than it is about specific regulation underpinning, you know, individual assets or sectors. 
how do you view or, or price political risk in what it is that you look to invest in? So the regulators are typically, um, you know, sorry, sorry, Ross, I interrupt. I interrupt. Yeah. It might be it might be that you know political risk. You know, in most of these OECD countries, you know, it, it's five years one way, five years the other. It's all around centre. It doesn't necessarily mean too much in terms of you know. It's only institutional breakdown where you have you know property rights are threatened and that sort of thing. Like it might not actually be that. It might not be a risk that you can manage outside of uh, you know geographical diversity. Um, I'm not sure. I'm just curious as to whether it's something that you factor. Oh, look, it definitely it definitely comes into um, certain sectors. So take renewables, Dave, where our political machinations in Australia have been devastating in terms of really the industry having investment certainty. So we've we've resisted, you know, investing into renewables, which are totally merchant in the sense they provide their output straight to the grid and take the spot price. We've, we've preferred to look at assets that are contracted and, and, and establish those contracting parties because then that's the credit risk we're taking as against yep. the machinations of, of the political cycle affecting you know, carbon credits or, or the price of carbon. So it, it does elevate certain sectors over others in different jurisdictions. Um, it provides a key gate to ensuring that there is uncorrelated return if you're adding an asset um, in, in a particular sector that you might think is homogeneous but isn't necessarily across different jurisdictions. So in, in the US, um, you know, clearly there's there's been a tilt in, in a particular way uh, in, in recent times under a Republican sort of presidency. There's, there's likely to be a, a different tilt with respect to uh, what I'd say is distributed energy and, and renewable um, and, and, and a green New Deal. If, for instance, um, you know the Democrats were getting in, were to get in the White House um, post October, November. So there's no question um, we, we would factor those elements in um, to the the discount rate we're using. We would typically scenario out uh, the respective bookends to those risks um, from a policy perspective. Uh, but but in many instances, you know, we want to have near-term certainty and, and, and massive political uncertainty probably infers we, we steer away from that jurisdiction in that sector for a period of time until it does become more stabilised and, and clear and predictable. Yeah. No, that, uh, that, that makes sense for sure. Um, coming back to, um, coming back to uh, COVID again, Ross, I, I was kind of curious about this early release from super and obviously a lot of your clients are superannuation uh, based clients where like what impact that has on on the liquid part of uh, a superannuation portfolio i.e infrastructure and other unlisted assets like ha- how are you seeing that play out and has it had much of an impact on what you're doing it, it's been a big factor for some of the super funds that are our in- investors um I think at 30 June, there'll be a consolidated view around um, the exposure to unlisted, but certainly in March, there was a lot of consternation on a couple of factors around this point, Dave. The first was that unlisted investment doesn't necessarily get priced day by day, as, as obviously listed exposure would. And so there was a real sense among certain funds that there was switching occurring within their funds between unlisted asset allocations or exposures 
that funds might offer back into liquids and, and they were therefore occurring at higher prices than what might would otherwise have been a mark-to-market price. So there was a huge drive by the super funds to get up-to-date pricing around their unlisted exposures. So that was the first thing. The second thing was um, the advent of the hardship um, payments that funds would make that the government mandated really created a lot of uncertainty. People were not sure in the super funds how much withdrawals would be made. And I suppose the JobKeeper and government support has certainly mitigated a large amount of what might have been withdrawn. I suspect there's still some uncertainty among some funds if the JobKeeper payments and support from government does come off what the the second payment draw might be. And and so that does create some portfolio construction or asset allocation concerns. And so most regularly, the most important thing that affects that allocation is, you know, the the denominator effect, which is simply if markets in the listed space fall, then obviously people go overweight unlisted in a different way yeah. and certain funds with inflows will have different sensitivities to the exposure they have to asset classes like private equity, real estate and infrastructure. So yeah. it's it's going to be a very um, keenly watched sort of element, I suspect, by the CIOs of many super funds, what that environment looks like around the time of the next hardship payment, uh, potentially window opening, and certain funds will be in stronger positions just with their incoming asset allocation to COVID and and their respective, you know, member bases, Um, you know, certain member bases being younger, um, you know, probably don't have as much exposure, but also it's it's important to differentiate here accumulation and defined benefit funds because there's probably slightly different risks as well around how they view their unlisted asset classes in their capital allocation going forward in a, in a more COVID-affected world. Yeah, sure. And it, it yes, there's certainly some super funds, as you say, that have got um, young membership and a low balance. But, you know, they're probably super funds as well where most of those members are, as you say, more protected by... Job seeker and job keeper. Um, so yeah, it really will be interesting over the coming months to see how that uh, how that plays out and whether it whether it causes ructions in both listed and unlisted markets domestically. You know, as a consequence. Uh, yeah, I don't know how that'll play. Ross, I also wanted to ask your thoughts on what sort of impact, and you did touch on it, but just what sort of impact this last 10 years of, you know, quantitative easing has had on um, your portfolio construction and, and you know, how, how do you go about the next 10 years, you know, shifting yep. from zero rates to potentially an inflationary environment? I mean, it may not happen. We might be stuck in a deflation or disinflationary environment, you know, as far as the eye can see. But how do you, how do you buy assets in a low interest rate environment and, and still maintain some semblance of value? Yeah, that's a good question. Happy happy to answer that. Um, you know, the last 10 years have presented with low interest rates a tailwind for all real assets valuations. It's been, um, you know, clearly a resilient and, and quite well-performing asset class. I think the go-forward has amplified the need for 
active management, um, you know, in terms of creating value in the businesses, the risk of inflation, um, I think, comes back to ensuring you've got a diversified portfolio that has assets that can ride inflation um, and certainly regulated assets uh, for many people represent a good diversifier in that sense. But it's also on contracted assets, you know, finding the respective profiles that have CPI included in in the revenue line, uh, which protect the business. The, um, you know, forward world looks more challenging, um, but that represents opportunity. Uh, You know, I think um, certainly the leverage that's come into the asset class has been significant and the pricing of that leverage and the appropriate capital structure to whether a rising interest rate environment is, is probably something that we've focused a lot on. Um, having a margin of safety around capital structure uh, to conditions that may change, given the duration we're investing for, is really important. And there's likely to be some distress that comes in certain businesses where the capital structure is, is, is too high with, with leverage. I, I would say that, um, you know, the positive thing about infrastructure is um, as we were talking earlier, the fiscal stimulus that comes underpins a series of opportunities and, and government recycling uh, those assets in time represents a great opportunity for institutional ownership. We believe um, also the life cycle opportunities create opportunity for investment. Uh, there are always renewal aspects and reason we're focused intently on technology and how it can be brought to bear in asset management is, um, yes, the cost of funds and, and, and the returns may be compressed, but the ability to continue to innovate around capex and, and operational efficiencies is, is a really key area that we feel an active manager can deliver. An example is the major trend away from time to condition-based maintenance with the ability of of drones and sensors on assets, it's an area where there's continuing opportunity right across the infrastructure subsectors to add value in managing assets. Uh, yeah, so sure. there, there's some there's some counterpoints to it, but it's it's a really valid point to say we've been a beneficiary of the tailwind. Um, interest rates have a profile; it would seem in the near term to stay low for a little while, but we're always cognizant given the duration we're holding the assets for that we've got to have a margin of safety in terms of how we operate them, how we finance them and increasingly how we evolve the businesses and the way they operate to face headwinds in the future. Yeah, sure. So what's, I mean, I don't know about your business, but typically in infrastructure, Ross, what's the standard, probably too broad a question, but around leverage, like what sort of leverage is typically employed in investing in, say, a transport asset? Well, you know, a transport asset, um, you know, let's say would be 50% levered as a a rule of thumb if it's an established gateway airport or gateway port. Um, Mm -hmm. That's long durational uh, debt compared to, you know, a PPP, to give you an idea of the spectrum, um, with a government yep. offtake, you know, a PPP could be 90% leveraged. So it's it's probably an area in um, asset management that, you know, an infrastructure 
manager needs to have competencies in. So we we have a dedicated debt and financing team of of um, four people who just do that. Uh, they they look at the refinancings in our assets. They are in constant um, contact with relationship banks. Um, you know we we have an active FX and interest rate hedging strategy in each business as required. It, it's probably one of the key areas to be successful in infrastructure and where you you can be active in in adding value um, through cycles through the debt cycle and then obviously mitigating risk over the duration you hold an asset by being prudent in diversifying sources of debt and and obviously ensuring that there are various durations of debt in the business and not being subject to shocks where refinancing events could really cruel returns. Yeah, wow. So this has been a great chat around um, uh, infrastructure investing generally, Ross. I've learned an incredible amount. I've got to ask you a couple of personal questions for a couple of personal anecdotes around investing, uh, and and I kind of want to just get a sense of uh, just a couple of examples. If you've got them, you can tell me to you know <laughs> you don't. Um, but examples of investments that you've made in infrastructure that that have surprised you both. You know, maybe one that went to the upside and why that was. It surprised you to the upside and and maybe one that didn't go to plan, so it surprised you to the downside and maybe what you learned. Uh, they're both broad you yep. on yep. the spot, but there we go. So um, start with the bad first because that's always where there's enormous learnings. Um, yeah, sure. And, 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 I, and, I might, and I might do both of these in, in the same sector. So we sure. invested in um, a ports business uh, in, in Spain, which had a diversified set of assets across Latin America and Europe. And it was a concessions business. So in ports, there's a distinction between actually a landlord port where you own all of the port and the land and you have tenants, um, as against being an owner of a concession, which is just part of a port uh, precinct, if I can put it that way. So the, mm-hmm. the bad experience was in the, in the latter. And we invested with a family business who'd been in shipping and in ports for over 100 years and that was a learning of alignment where really our institutional imperative to grow the business wasn't commensurate with the family because we hit the GFC and basically they didn't have any money and couldn't ride the opportunity set that we eventually could see. So that was a very key learning. Um, We we were able to get out of the asset at cost uh, but it was an enormous reminder of, of partners, governance and control and, and the importance in the unlisted sphere of, of certainly being really aware of alignments of interest. Well, that, that I mean, that's so relevant for, you know, not just for unlisted infrastructure. I mean, that's, a you know, co-investing in anything, making sure that your interests are aligned with the people that you're investing with. Like I've had that in business where, you know, you, if you're at a different point in your life to your partner, then you can end up, you know, at a point of stress, yeah, it takes on a very different complexion. So, you know, that, that's a good lesson for anyone, I think. Yeah, and, and, and aligning those interests up front and, and being aware of them um, and truly sort of testing them through some scenarios, um, you know, would have been um, 
really sort of valuable in that that instance and 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 you know mm. it's those stresses and shocks that create you know the really difficult conversations sometimes in those relationships yeah. um the, the the good experience um was also in ports but this is probably a learning we pivoted and, and invested in um uh, a landlord port so uh we, we were fortunate to, to be part of the consortium that won port of brisbane um it was an asset class that hadn't been well financed um, in the sense that there hadn't been a lot of opportunities to invest in landlord ports. And so it was a unique opportunity to see how the business could, could be optimised out of government ownership um, as it was privatised. And also as we rode that interest rate cycle we, we just previously spoke about and lenders' knowledge of how resilient and strong the landlord ports were as credits, you know, we, we were able to get a very good sort of outcome as we, as we grew familiarity with the business from lenders and, and as we were able to optimise the business through different trades that it was able to uh, develop. And also um, Port of Brisbane has a large, you know, land bank and, and being able to sort of leverage the opportunities in there to sort of support the port business and obviously the logistics chain that feed into it. So that was a great experience in a sector that was probably not really well familiarised with both institutional investors and lenders, but um, which significantly following also, the privatisations of Port of Botany, Port of Melbourne, you know, has become, you know, a greater opportunity set for investors in Australia in terms of landlord ports. So, we were able to get in early there. Yeah, sure. So, how does um, – and this will be the last question, Ross, because I'm very conscious of time here. So, just on that, like, how do you typically, when you invest in an asset, how do you frame exit at the point of entry? Do you or is it more about, you know, a sort of – perpetuity type investment horizon like I mean it's probably asset individual asset dependent but how do you typically frame that we are framing it as as a as an in perpetuity hole Dave like the mm -hmm. capital we're representing really wants to hold the assets for beyond my my tenure likely um, in terms of the management of them so mm. that frames um, clearly if we're partnering with people who do need an exit one needs to think deeply about the governance around that and the alignment of interest that might be tilted mm. with that particular desire in time to occur. Um, it, it, it aligns itself to two increasingly important risks for us to manage with that duration. And the first of those we've touched on a bit is, is technology disruption and, and business change. Mm. Uh, that's certainly one. And the second increasingly really important is you know, climate change and sustainability and how the business operates because that's a that's a long theme which will affect, you know, any perpetuity ownership, if you want to call it, of a port. Think sea rise, yeah. airport sea rise. Um, we're seeing uh, the, the nature of a zero carbon preference emerge clearly around institutional investors and so we're working hard in many of our assets to drive that outcome. And, and so that doesn't happen in one or two years. It's it's a multi-decade um, exercise. In, in some yeah. jurisdictions, it'll happen sooner rather than later. But these are some of the risks that um, come into frame when you've got that longer duration. And, and you think a lot about life cycle risk, you know, renewal of assets yeah. and optimization over time. 
Yeah, sure. Ross, uh, really, really, I've really enjoyed this. It's been um, most enlightening. Uh, for someone who's had zero exposure to in, uh, infrastructure investing, I, I've learned uh, a lot. So thank you so much for, um, you know, taking the time and being so patient, you know, answering questions that, um, uh, you know, to the more initiated probably wouldn't have been asked. All good, Dave. Thanks for the opportunity. It's always great to talk. Yeah, perfect. So, Ross, if people want to uh, reach out to you uh, and, and get in touch, how what's the best way for them to do that? Yes, certainly through through QIC, uh, definitely. And then uh, I am on, on LinkedIn, so so ping me on LinkedIn. Happy to sort of add colour. Some of the, the research we've done, if, if it's of interest to people, is on, on the QIC website. We've looked at technology disruption and infrastructure, climate change, um, fiscal stimulus and, and hydrogen are a couple of the research papers coming. You might see them in the next month or so. So if people have an interest... By all means, that could be a good uh, place to, to reference some material. Yeah, perfect. Well, I'll link to um, uh, the QAC website there, Ross, in the show notes. So that'll be perfect. Excellent. Um, thank you. Yeah, thanks again. And uh, yeah, well, good luck over the coming months uh, into the new financial year. Thank you very much. And uh, we, we look forward to staying in touch. <laughs> good one, Ross. Cheers. Okay, good. That's it for today's episode of Beyond the Obvious. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a favourable rating or review in the App Store. If you'd like to get in touch, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. Until next time, hooray. Hooray.